this is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our podcast, Parental Alienation from Couch to Courtroom and Beyond. We will discuss the resisting and refusing dynamic, commonly referred to as parental alienation, how you'll know it's happening in your case, and what can be done about it. Parental alienation can cause stress and trauma in high-conflict cases. These podcasts focus on how attorneys and mental health professionals can support families and children. Welcome to uh, episode 20 uh, of our uh, podcast programs, and it's really exciting to be back. I came back from the um, uh, PASG Parent Alienation Study Group Conference in Fort Collins, Colorado, where a group of uh, my colleagues and I presented on uh, what people don't get in graduate school. In other words, what you didn't learn in graduate school. Um, And the reason why you don't learn it in graduate school is because they don't teach it in graduate school. That's a, a pretty good reason. I have a close friend of mine who's a professor here in the Tampa Bay area and teaches at a uh, college uh, university and he uh, teaches clinical psychology and he informs me that there is absolutely no information about parental alienation provided to PhD level clinical psychologists coming out of the university and I suspect this is probably um, a very common phenomenon uh, that people are not getting educated in this topic which is really very, very hard to believe that uh, such a thing could, could exist. Um, but one of the things that we, w- we presented, which the whole idea was to say, hey, what's going on in, with, with clinicians when they get in and, and working with a family? Well, what happens? What, how do they do? Why do they do the things that they do? We find mental health counselors, people that are very educated, uh, writing letters to the court. Uh, when they've been retained by one parent to do therapy or counseling with a child who's involved in a in a divorce case, and and they do other things. They give testimony about uh, recommend recommending to the court who should have contact with a child and who shouldn't, even though they don't conduct a a, a comprehensive ther- th- uh, custody evaluation. And so some of the things that that was covered, and, and we. T- we kind of referred to this as misplaced advocacy. So what happens to some mental health professionals is they they become an advocate of the person that comes in for the counseling or therapy, presenting their child as having difficulty with a divorce situation. And that sounds perfectly normal. But there are certain things we think maybe a clinician should take a look at and maybe build into their practice some things that um, might be helpful to not only the the child and the parent, but, but perhaps uh, the, the case in general for the for the whole system. So um, one of the things that we saw talked about was like road signs, if you will, or uh, forensic signals, uh, forensic signals. Um, and many times therapists are not told that the parents are divorcing or considering divorce. So a parent comes in, brings the child in, and says, "My child is having. He's anxious. She's anxious." And they can't sleep or they're not eating right or whatever. And they don't say anything about what's going on in the family. 
uh, like there's a divorce going on or the parent has been removed from the home and that they're just living now with a single parent or they have no access to the other parent with whom they used to previously have this loving relationship. So, you know, a parent comes in, parent A comes in and uh, seeking uh, services for their child and um, generally at some point it starts to evolve around something to do with the other parent, parent B. So, um, I, I, for example, they might say a child's afraid, they're anxious, they're angry at the other parent because the other parent is abusive or neglectful or something. Um, so what does the clinician do? Very common things that we observe in these court cases is the therapist then dives in and starts to work with the child and deal with their fear and their anxiety and their anger uh, because of the other parent and no contact with the other parent is attempted. They start working with the child and next thing you know that they're, they're not advocating for the child without having any information from the other parent. So obviously one of the things that we're suggesting is if somebody comes in and they're coming in to work with the child because they maybe told you about the uh, upcoming divorce or the family situation, the legal situation or whatever, Number one, you want to see whatever documentation that that parent has. Are they divorced? If they're divorced, then you want the marital settlement agreement. If there is um, a separation, is there a parenting plan in place? Is there a guardian ad litem in the case? Um, would it make sense for you to speak to the other parent as well? And so somebody comes in the very first visit and they want you to start working with the child, it might be wise to say, well, wait a second, tell me what's going on from your perspective, and then you want to access the other parent to see what's going on with that parent. And that would be a very, very positive thing to do. I will tell you that if you're working in an alienation situation, generally speaking, if you want to speak to the other parent and you're dealing with the alienating or the favorite parent, um, there's a very good chance you're gonna lose a case. They're just gonna leave and walk away. They're going to shop for a therapist who will side for them. And that's a big flag. They might tell you that uh, they don't want you to contact the other parent because the other parent can't be trusted. You know, they're pathological liars and they're very dangerous. So you should be, you should, you know, don't, don't waste your time contacting that parent. If you get that kind of an excuse to not talk to the other parent, that's a red flag. That's really serious because you think about how you can work with a child who is in a family situation that's in some state of turmoil. You need to understand that child's world and you need both perspectives, both parents' perspectives in terms of what's happening. Um, if a parent says, well, they don't know how to get in touch with the other parent, that seems a little odd, doesn't it? Uh, especially if they're getting involved in a legal case and they're getting divorced. Again, assuming that you know about the you know, impending legal situation. They may keep that quiet for a while. Uh, and again, I think that would be very suspicious. You can do some searches in terms of what court cases are around in your jurisdiction. It might pay for you to do a little bit of work. There is a whole lot of, uh, every pr professional has a code of ethics. Mental health counselors, cl uh, clinical social workers, um, marriage and family therapists, psychologists, we all have codes of ethics by our professional associations. And it would be wise to kind of review that 
because you might be getting pulled into a situation that ultimately could really backfire on you down the road, and, and you need to be very careful. Um, you might get the excuse that the uh, they don't want you to speak with the child alone because, you know, the child's already traumatized, and they, they need to... Uh, uh, they need that parent with them to feel secure. Well, you have another parent. If you have a parent in the room while you're talking to the child, that parent's presence is going to affect what comes from the child, no matter how you want to twist it. And you're going to frequently see um, a child looking back to that parent to see if whatever they're saying or however they're responding to the mental health professional's questions uh, they're going to be looking back to that parent to say, oh, did I get it right? And I said, okay, can I say that? And so you need to be very careful about whether uh, the child is, is alone or whether the child is in the presence of the other parent. Many times I see mental health professionals will interview children and the group. They'll have the siblings in the same room. And then, of course, we've got the influence of the siblings on each person's response. So you need to be aware of that. And, yeah, I know it's time-consuming. And, yeah, you're trying to do the best job you can if you're a mental health professional. But you need to be careful because the favored parents, the alienating parents, are, as we say, very uh, cool, calm, charming, and convincing. And they will paint a picture that becomes very believable. And many, many, many times a lot of these folks are dealing with personality disorders that are very... Um, influential and convincing so you need to be very careful um, so uh, you might hear the child talking about a situation in the family or regarding the other parent using the same vocabulary that that parent's using which seems odd to you like well how come they're not giving their own description in their own words but they may be using vocabulary and frequently I found Frequently, some of these children will be using words that they really don't understand. Not too long ago, I had a case. Uh, I had a case that the child was interviewed, went in and told an investigator that uh, the child has been abused. Well, the investigator said, "Well, tell me more about that." Well, she didn't know because her mother didn't tell her anymore. And so you see these kinds of situations coming up all the time. Need to be careful. Um, the child might only report uh, abuse uh, in very gross terms but can't give you any details uh, and it has to repeat themselves and then they're at a very surface level and they stay there well that's not how we that's not how our memory works if a parent was abusive if a parent was neglectful the child might have some more details to share and assuming that you set up the right um, a rapport with a child and you you're now having a conversation Generally speaking, the children will go into some kinds of details about what's happening in their family and what their situation is. You'll see, you're familiar with the eight symptoms of parental alienation, and one of them is where one parent is painted as all bad, never had a good time with them, hated them from the day they were born, and never again want to see them again. And the other parent is all positive and good, never had a negative word to say about the other parent. When you have that kind of polarization, okay, that's not typical. That's atypical. That's, that's wrong. And what happens is we're getting more and more influence from various associations to say, well, you know, if the child says it, you know, you better believe it. Or 
it's very it's very likely that the child's telling you the truth or there's reasons the child can't give you any details about anything or the child has never had a positive relationship with the parent as if that's even possible so we need to be a little more common sense in terms of how realistic are some of these things um you'll if you're interviewing a parent and you have a child in a you have interviewing a child and a parents in a room you're going to very sometimes see that a parent is going to interject to help the child remember um, and and to get it right so you as the mental health professional can um, you know get it right and so you can do things that you need to do uh, more often than not if you're in an alienation scenario or phenomenon situation the one parent really wants to bring you on as an advocate and going to use you in court to, to build their case and to support their case and that's not a good use of your skills, um, quite honestly. Um, sometimes you're going to see children reporting things um, even before they were capable of remembering. You know, we don't really develop the capability for episodic memory, telling you about a, an event and stories and details. We don't develop that until, you know, six to, and it varies by child, because there's individual differences somewhere between 6 and 7 and the and 12 and there are some 12 year olds 12 year olds that really can't give you a good uh, episodic memory of of events and so one of the things that you need to be careful with is getting a sense of that child's mature, maturity their developmental level what are they capable of now bright children can fool you very much and they can convince you that oh yeah they remember all of these details when in fact some of it may actually be a script that they memorized or they were taught and so and that happens i mean you have people that are detractors of parental alienation and they want to they want to tell you that it doesn't exist or you can't really prove that it's coming from one parent uh, but where's it coming from where does a child learn to hate a parent for what does does the crimes of the rejected parent do they rise to a level where the child wants nothing to do with them that seems uh strange uh, richard gardner was once asked many moons ago you know what it would take for a child to actually hate a parent to reject it and his response was there their abuse would have to be of such a magnitude that it, there would be police reports there would be hospital records there, it would just be such a chaotic situation that that might possibly explain the, a child rejecting a parent. The research is very clear that even children who have been genuinely abused want to maintain contact with that parent, with the abusive parent. They don't want to leave that parent. In fact, if you think about the logic of it, abused children typically become protectives of the abuser. Why? Because frequently the children, what, blame themselves for the abuse. Isn't that interesting? But that's the opposite of what people are saying to us now about, well, you can have abuse, and, and that's, where, that's why the children are rejecting the parent. It's pretty unusual for a, an, abusive, an abused child to reject an abusive parent. And that's really, quite honestly, is one of the characteristics of distinguishing between parental alienation and uh, estrangement the child is so venomously hateful of that parent at least that's what they say and so it seems that there must be a good reason i had a case in the state of washington i was listening to a mental health professional who did an evaluation 
and the evaluation was the children hated their father. And the, the evaluator was a mental health professional. He said he didn't know why the children hated the pa father. Um, they had no evidence of any kind of abuse or neglect or any kind of misdoing by the part of the father. But you know what? The children hated the father so much, he must have done something wrong. And, and I'm sorry, uh, a follow-up uh, cross-examination was, well, to tell us, sir, um, how much uh, education have you gotten in the area of parental alienation? And he said, oh, I think he read an article once about it. And that was the extent of his expertise in parental alienation. I don't know how the case went. I don't know how it resolved. Frequently, we don't know as experts unless somebody calls us back and says, hey, this is what happened. So I don't know how that case was resolved. But it's not uncommon for, for people to say, well, that child must have a good reason. So therefore, we should, we should believe the child. Um, so one of the other things, let's see. Um, what you'll see frequently is the negative attributes that are uh, projected or extended to one parent go now to that parent's entire family, grandparents, grandfathers, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. The, and and in, in, in interviews and, and counseling sessions, the child will say, well, I never really loved that grandmother. Now, I don't know about you, but you know what grandmothers are like, right? It'd have to be pretty pathological, something out of Hollywood. Um, grandmothers basically do nothing but spoil their grandchildren. And so this child never, ever, ever really loved that grandparent. And he was always forced to go there and spend, you know, summers with the grandparents on their farms. And they hated it the whole time. Um, and again, if, if the therapist can contact uh, the other parent and find out that they get a totally different story than what's going on. Um, the therapist may want to speak to um, an attorney uh, about what's going on. Uh, what you're going to find is that the, a parent's going to come in and they're going to have the very first session with you and tell you all of the story. Then the next thing is, let me give you the name and number of my attorney. And maybe you could contact my attorney and, and help my case. And sometimes people are very upfront about it. And they'll say that. Um, mental health professional with some kind of savvy would probably uh, not get too involved in something like that but you get lured into these cases uh, and and it becomes a problem so I just wanted to share some of the things that we talked about one of the really exciting things that um, I, I, I came across in working and putting this course together was uh, working in you know, looking at the article of by uh, Philip Zimbardo and he, um, Philip Zimbardo, wrote a book called uh, The Lucifer Effect. And it's, it's a really exciting um, um, book to read. And, and he has a, actually, if you go to YouTube, you could get a, a video of The Lucifer Effect. And one thing, I'm just going to leave this with you because I want to talk more about this on another episode. But we look at these situations where, uh, Zimbardo's question was, how do good people do bad things? And you know, you think about it, you have an alienating situation or phenomenon. How, do you, how does a parent do this to a child? In many, many cases, it's conscious, it's deliberate. In some cases, it's not. It's unconscious. It's, in it's a function of their mental disorder, if you will. But, but Zimbardo asked the question, how do good people do bad things? My question is, how, how, how do good parents do this thing to children in terms of parental alienation, which is a form of abuse? 
And so he divides the world into three different areas. And he talks about the disposition of the people. That is the thing. This is the phenomenon of the characteristics within the person. And then there's the person is finding themselves in a situation, a situation like getting a divorce, marital dis, uh, relationship dissolution, etc. And then, and then he says things like, if you want to change the person, change the situation. Zimbardo is a, is a social psychologist. He's still alive. I think he's 90-something years old out in California. And you want to change the person? Change the situation. Then he goes a step further. You want to change the situation, you have to change the source of the power. And the source of the power is the system in which the situation is finding itself. In the case of parental alienation, in the case of marital dissolution, it's the legal system. So the legal system is composed of what? Judges, lawyers, laws, L-A-W-S, laws. My New York accent comes out sometimes. Uh, uh, proceedings, procedures within a courtroom. And it goes on and on and on. I'll be happy to talk more about these later. So you got judges that have biases. You have judges that, that have, they have their own sense of knowledge about this phenomenon of parental alienation. You have guardian ad litems who either know something about it or they don't know anything about it. And it goes on. So you have the individual, you have the individual who's in a situation, and you have the individual and the situation all encompassed within a system. Right? And that's the legal system. And so it, these are the factors, these are the elements that really make this whole thing work. This is the, the soup, if you will. And uh, we'll talk more about this later because I think it's an interesting concept that we need to talk about. But right now, keep in mind if you're willing or interested in go to naopas.com look at the coursework that we have we're going to be putting up the conference that we just came from in fort collins that'll be coming up as soon as we get the uh, production from the video people so hopefully that'll come up um and again go to naopas.com to look at some of our other offerings and trainings and remember you get a discount if you mention podcast you take care for now and thank you Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on this topic, please visit www.drbobevans.com or www.naopas.com. We offer classes for both legal and mental health professionals to help educate them on the signs and strategies of parental alienation and how to move forward for a healthier environment for the children of divorce. Please visit www.naopas.com and sign up for our courses and use coupon code PODCAST for a 50% discount. Mm-hmm.